Hello. I'm Pastor Anthony, as she said, you are at New Day Vine. So this is the end of the journey to Easter. Well, let me say this first, since it's glaringly obvious. I injured my finger today. It's not broken. It's going to be just fine. But it's awkward. So we've all acknowledged the awkward. There it is. <laughs> happens to be the finger between the index and the ring finger, making this a very strange Easter presentation. <laughs> but it's going to be good because this is Easter weekend. And guys, we are here to talk about Easter, but I want to really invite you to come tomorrow to the sunrise service. If you want something awesomely solemn and commemorative, that is sweet, man. It's at the top of Mount Home Cemetery. It's really great. And also the Easter services tomorrow at New Day Community Church at the Nichols campus and the Vandalia campus will be really awesome and focused on Easter. So I wanted to take a slightly different tack today, since it's technically the day before Easter, and we're going to read the Easter story, and then we're going to talk about some effects of the resurrection. Does that sound good? Excellent. Let's start with the Easter story out of Matthew, though. This is Matthew 28, 1 through 10, in the NIV. After the Sabbath, that would be today, at the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. You'll remember, I didn't put this part of the story in there, but after Jesus died on the cross, a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate, who was the, the Roman governor, and said, he's dead, could I please have the body? I want to honor him. I know you probably think it's crazy, but I want to put him in my own tomb. And Pilate said yes. So they put him there in the tomb. And then now we find out that the other Mary and Mary Magdalene go to the tomb to look at it, and there was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. There was a massive stone rolled in front of the opening, but that didn't stop the angel. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards that were there were so afraid of him, and we'll talk more about them later, that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go, quickly, and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead, and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. But it doesn't actually end there for Mary and Mary Magdalene, because as they're obeying and leaving, something happens. The, woman, the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. I love this. The risen Lord. This is his introduction back to the world of the living. He meets these two women and says, greetings. <laughs> so, the word there is actually Cairo, which was used for hello, but it also means rejoice or be glad. It's so fitting. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the resurrection. This is one of the most undeniable proofs that Christianity has something to it as it at its core. Yeah. This is something that can't be argued with. Uh, classically, uh, I remember reading Dante's Inferno and Purg Purgatorio and Paradiso in high school. Who has, everybody does that, right? And in the Paradiso, this is written in the 1300s, 
And the saints in heaven quiz Dante, and they say, hey, you, let's see how good you, you are at apologetics, basically, like old school apologetics. They're like, why should we believe in this resurrection thing? And Dante says, how else do you explain this faith? How else do you explain the fact that it's traveling the world and it has so much sway and that lives are being changed and miracles are happening? Everything's being turned upside down to look like God's kingdom. The only way you can explain that is resurrection. Amen. And he gets an attaboy and a good job and they let him keep journeying through heaven. But this is a real piece of history. We're going to discover today, though, that even though we are here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, that things changed after the resurrection considerably. It had far-reaching and eternal consequences that were not good news for everyone. There are a lot of different players in the crucifixion story, and they are all impacted by the resurrection story that is still going on. And we're going to talk about some of those players right now. First, all supernatural <coughs> opposition. We're talking about the demonic realm, we're talking about Satan himself, and Anthony, did you choose a picture of Diablo 3's cover art to represent something as serious as the devil? And the answer is yes, I did. And, and I want to tell you why. I could have picked some really scary, nasty picture of a demon. There's a ton of them online. You can find all kinds of gross stuff. But the fact of the matter is, I don't know that the devil is ever portrayed as truly believing he stood a fighting chance against God himself. Also, this is my favorite video game. <laughs> but if you look at the Bible, we know in Revelation that the dragon makes war against, against God, but he really is, is shut down pretty quick. You know, And, and you look at Jesus' encounters with the demonic, and these seem like characters that know their days are numbered. Let's, let's read this account from Matthew 8, 28-32. Jesus crosses over the Sea of Galilee, and two men who are demon-possessed meet him. As they were coming out of the tombs, they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Does that sound like two demons that were really hoping they'd come out on top? No. Not really. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine. The demons began to entreat him. They're begging to Jesus, saying, If you're going to cast us out, Send us into the herd of swine, and he says to them, go. You can read that story in Mark and Matthew. These, these are not demons that are putting up a real fight against Jesus. They meet him and beg for mercy. And we know that after the cross and after the resurrection, things do in fact go this way. Here's a passage, for, excuse me, a passage from Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Paul's talking about what Jesus did to get rid of our sin debt. And then he talks about the implications in the heavenlies. He says, Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, we might be tempted to read that and think powers and authorities, that means people like Pilate, people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and certainly those were powers and authorities. But this is what the people of that time period were referring to the demonic realm as. Powers and authorities and thrones and dominions. We found all kinds of magical texts where people are trying to gain some kind of occult control over these entities. And St. Paul is saying, whatever these things are, we know there's a demonic realm. Jesus trounced them 
He trounced them. And this whole thing about making a public spectacle of them and triumphing over them by the cross, that is, that's like a, a conquering emperor or a conquering emperor who comes back to Rome and he's leading his train of captives behind him and they're humiliated. So this big scary thing that we might think of as the demonic or spiritual opposition or the devil, it's scary, all right? You know? I mean, it is like a roaring lion. That's what the Bible calls the devil. You know, prowling about, seeking whom he may devour. But to the cross, to the resurrection, he's not just defeated, he's humiliated. Absolutely humiliated. No real hope of the victory for the devil. That's an effect of the resurrection. Amen. Not necessarily good news for them. But there's another player. Not just the demonic realm, but also the whole world is affected by this resurrection story. It seemed like at the end of Jesus' life, the whole world was against him. But the whole world had some things happen to it as a result of the resurrection. We know it was always God's plan to influence the world. He tells Abraham, way back in Genesis 12, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. There's always been a global scope to God's plan, even back at the beginning. It's no mistake that the ascending Jesus says as a last word to his disciples, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. We're blowing the lid off this thing. Now is the time. Go and take this message to the world. That crazy hostile world that just had you crucified Jesus? Yes, them. Fast forward 2,000 years later, and we have this map. I don't know the year, please forgive me. It's almost irrelevant, though. This is based on census data. And the darker the blue on the country, the more people that identify with being Christians. Now that incorporates all Christians, I'm sure, Catholics, everything. But can we say that that message of that little nobody that got crucified, that peasant, that nothing from Nazareth, has kind of expanded to the whole world? Does it look like all the nations of the earth are being blessed in that name? And I would argue yes. Because the fact of the matter is, regardless of whether like Jesus or not, the world cannot resist the effects of resurrection. It cannot. The resurrection had an impact on all of the world. Moving down a little bit, let's just look at the government, the Roman government in particular, the largest empire in the world at that time, maybe the largest ever. And the, the government in the story is represented by this guy, poor Pontius Pilate, you know, I... I don't know if he really was a nasty guy. I've heard he was a particularly nasty human being. But he has a black eye forever because of his portrayal in the Gospels. He's the governor in charge of the area around Jerusalem, okay? That was already known as a real tough area to deal with. So he's got a hard job. This is an area, just like it does now, that had a reputation for blowing up, going out of control, weird conflicts, infighting, problems Rome can barely understand. This guy had a job, and that was go over there and make sure they don't get crazy. Just, would you just keep them under control? You know, don't let any riots start. We don't want any revolutions. We don't want to have to dispatch too many legions over to that area. Would you just keep them quiet? That's Pilate's job. And in spite of himself, he doesn't do a very good job. Look at this. This guy is so wishy-washy. In John 19... Read that chapter and look at Pilate. The guy is trying to get rid of Jesus. He knows he's innocent. He says it over and over again, and he can't get rid of him. Then Pilate tried to release him, 
But the Jewish leader shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. They're rounding themselves up. All these people are saying, you better crucify him. He says he's a king. You're not a traitor too, are you? Anyone who supports another king is a traitor to Rome. Well, traitors to Rome get crucified. Nobody wants to get crucified. They're in a way threatening Pilate himself with a terrible death. Pilate still tries to release them. They're not having it. Matthew 27, 24. Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere. But that instead, an uproar was starting. The very thing that I'm sure was in his job description. Don't let this happen again. An uproar was started. So he takes water, washes his hands in front of the crowd. This is that famous moment where he washes his hands in front of all of them. And says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. It's your responsibility. But then orders are crucified. Can you do that? You just wash your hands of Jesus? Really? Look at all the things this man did to maintain control. He kills an innocent man. He releases a criminal. Do you remember that he releases Barabbas? To, why is he doing that? He's doing it to placate the crowd. He is selling out to maintain control. He guards the tomb. We read right by that like it's not a big deal. But the chief priests and the Pharisees go up to him and say, Hey, we need a guard on this tomb. I'm sorry, on whose tomb? The peasant from Nazareth that has no credentials? That guy? The one with the fishermen following him? And Pilate does it! He gives them a guard to guard the tomb. He puts his official seal on the tomb. Why is he going through all this trouble? He didn't take the time to listen to Jesus. He disregards him. But he also disregards justice itself, which Rome carried in such high esteem. And he doesn't listen to his wife, who tries to warn him, hey, I've had a terrible dream. Don't crucify this guy. This guy's selling, inventing new ways to sell out. Just to keep control. Then the resurrection happens. The resurrection hits Rome hard. By 313, the Emperor Constantine, many people think, just gives up. Trying to persecute Christians, trying to control Christians. And he says, alright, fine, I'm a Christian too. And stops the persecution of Christians. By 380, Christianity is declared the official religion of Rome. What an astounding turnaround in less than 400 years. Even Rome, the most powerful empire maybe ever, what's up, bro? Could not control the effects of the resurrection. Rome couldn't. That's astounding. Let's move down a little bit to the religious leaders. How are we doing? Is everybody, you guys getting this? Is this good? Awesome. These poor people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, these people have been gunning for Jesus for a long time. And they're probably the party most responsible for the crucifixion. In fact, at one point in his dialogue with Pilate, Pilate says, why aren't you talking to me? Why aren't you defending yourself? Why aren't you answering me? Why aren't you giving me something to go on here? Don't you know I have the authority to crucify you or to release you? Thinking that's going to like throw cold water on Jesus' face. Instead, Jesus says, hey, you wouldn't have any authority at all if it wasn't given to you by my Father in heaven. So the people that handed me over to you have the greater sin. That's these guys. The chief priests, the Pharisees, 
the Sadducees. These guys really wanted Jesus out of the way. They fought for it, man. And the reason they fought for it was because they, were, they had a vested interest in keeping things the same. Keep things the same. Don't rock our boat. Now, there were lots of different opinions in Judaism at this time. It wasn't, you know, one way to go, you know what I mean? The Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians and all these different sects for a reason. They would bicker and argue with each other. But you could only rock the boat so much. I mean, they had traditions. They had norms. They had a way of doing religion. And, and those aren't all the same thing. Their traditions were the traditions of the elders. They spent a long time parsing out what it means to fulfill each law. They had volumes written on it. So people knew how to stay in line. You kept the traditions. Jesus comes along and says, eh, we're throwing those out. Those, those don't count. What do you mean they don't count? We've been figuring this out for a couple generations now. And Jesus says, no, yeah, you just don't have to wash the bowl. Wash yourself. Man, though these laws and these things that you've written down, I, gosh, I just really don't think those apply. Says who? Says me. Well, you're going to get in a fight with these guys talking that way. And they had some norms as well, culturally. Jesus and the Pharisees wanted sinners to repent. Did you guys know that? But Pharisees wanted to shame them into repentance, and Jesus wanted to have lunch with them into repentance. You know, he was breaking all of the rules with how you treated sinners and how you associated with people who weren't good Jews. He was breaking all of their religious traditions. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, they loved the temple, man. They loved that everything revolved around the temple. That was their thing. That was their baby. It was the, the shining gem of their culture. And Jesus walks up and says, I think I'll destroy it and raise it back up in three days. <laughs> These people could not handle that much dissonance. You can't rock the boat that much. They really wanted Jesus dead. But ironically, the crucifixion that they had to fight so hard for, and they did, instituted a new covenant, a whole new way of doing things. Amen. The crucifixion that they fought for, and it gets worse for them because the resurrection permanently altered their religious world. Permanently. The theological effects, the way things needed to be done as a result of Jesus' sacrifice, the Jews that really embraced that and thought through it, they're like, oh my gosh, we don't, we don't even really need to offer sacrifices at the temple anymore. Oh my gosh, we can eat whatever we want. We don't even really need those rules and regulations before. Wow. They did not succeed at keeping things the same. In spite of themselves, the resurrection ruined that for this group. Let's go down one more. The guards. I don't think these guys get enough airtime. We don't know much about the Roman guards that were placed at the tomb. But we do know this. They had what should have been the easiest job in the world. Don't let the dead guy out. <laughs> and be careful, a couple really sad women might come and try to get it. Not hard. Well, look at this. So Jesus is dead. Our friends, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they go to Pilate and they say, this is Matthew 27, 62 to 66, by the way. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember. Oh, now you know what he said. We remember that while he was still alive, that this deceiver said, 
After three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. And then the next verse, actually, it's not here, but it says, and they went and made the tomb secure. Well, not really. So they do get the soldiers. They place soldiers at this tomb of this nobody peasant. You've got to feel how ridiculous this must have seemed, even to the soldiers. Guard this tomb. Yes, sir. I'm a Roman soldier. I'll do whatever you tell me, but this is crazy. Then we know what happens. We know that the angel rolls back the tomb. There's an earthquake. They can't control themselves. They're paralyzed with fear. They can't stop from happening what they were supposed to stop from happening. And they freak out because their lives are on the line now. As ridiculous as it seemed, they were supposed to keep this guy from getting away. He was essentially a prisoner. There was a seal on the tomb and everything. So they don't go to Pilate. Pilate might have killed him. They go to the high priest and the Pharisees and they say, we got a problem here. We don't know what happened. There was a bright light. We were scared. He's gone. And the Pharisees come up with this ingenious plan. Let me skip forward. There we go. Nope. Aha. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, that's not right. Interesting. Yes, here we go. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, that will be Pilate. We will pacify him and keep you out of trouble. Okay. Just tell people that you were sleeping and they rolled the giant sealed stone away <laughs> and took the body. Must have been a lot of money. It's the only thing I can think of. But the guards roll with it. It's better than dying. And the Bible actually says this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this day. But the bottom line is the guards couldn't stop Jesus from getting out. Couldn't do it. It doesn't matter how many there are or how well they were armed. The resurrection won. The resurrection will have an effect. And then there's one last group that we need to talk about, and that is these sad people. The followers of Jesus themselves. This is a still frame that I actually find kind of nice from the Passion of the Christ. I believe it's Mary, Mary Magdalene, and John. And uh, they're looking at the crucifixion scene just in disbelief. Like, all their faces are a little different. It's Mary, the mother of Jesus, whose face really strikes me the most. But all is lost for them when Jesus dies. None of them, as faithful as they were, as much as they loved him, and they loved him, they knew who he was, they were banking everything on him in a deep, gut-level way. They loved Jesus, and they watched him tortured and killed. That's the end of everything for you, man. But the resurrection meant something different for these people than it meant for all of those other world powers and beyond. These people, this small group, discovered that the Lord they loved was alive. That their faith was not misplaced after all. That death itself had been defeated. That they had a sure hope. And the truth is that their wildest dreams were true. Their wildest dreams were true. The dreams they probably couldn't even voice to themselves when they were following Jesus. I wonder, is this really... Would he, you know, there's that one verse... Do you think he's really... No, come on. I mean, he's great, but don't get crazy. And then he shows up and says, Hello. Greetings. And it's all true for them. It's all true. So I want to ask you guys, if you identify with these people, you have experienced that, resurrection life in yourself, meeting, falling in love with Jesus, 
discovering that your Savior lives, discovering that you have a sure hope, your wildest dreams are true. It wasn't the end of the world. This is a new beginning. If you love Jesus, I have a question and a challenge for you, a resurrection challenge, if you will. Because we struggle with many of the same things that we just saw other powers struggling with. The challenge is, stop trying to keep Jesus from getting out. Stop it. Let Jesus' life flow through you. Can you say with Paul, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ in me. Fire those guards that live in your heart and stop trying to keep Jesus from getting out. And while you're at it, let him change your traditions, your norms, and your religion. Maybe there are some things you've always done that you need to stop doing. Maybe there are some ways you've always treated that person or those people that you need to stop treating. Maybe certain ways you need to augment and some things you need to start doing. And certainly, your religious life needs to have a new center. More and more, Christ himself. Don't sell out to cling to control of your life. Jesus has this habit. God does everywhere he goes that when he shows up, he is in control. Sometimes people recognize it willingly, and sometimes they recognize it after he demonstrates it. But don't sell out to maintain control. Give it to the Lord. Pray and believe for the salvation of the world. It's always been the plan. You can call it in. Well, not maybe in an effective sense, but we can certainly pray for it to happen because it is happening and it's God's plan for it to happen. That's not too big of a vision. Embrace it. It's going on. And know that you fight from a stance of victory. Nothing can stand against you. The devil can cause problems. You know what? I will concede that he might be a deadly annoyance to some martyrs in this world. But he's an annoyance and he's defeated. We have an eternal hope an eternal security, an eternal Lord. Yes. Fight from the stance of victory. And there's one more amazing thing, and this is on a light note and a humorous note, if you will, and this is in closing. But I find that I truly celebrate it, and I truly worship when I eat. <laughs> Something about me, you know? The new covenant changed things. Some things were very deep, and some things are are perhaps kind of comical, but uh, maybe this isn't an appropriately solemn or serene end to the service, but guys, bacon. 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 Do you realize that in the Old Testament law, they weren't allowed to eat pork? Do you realize that in the New Testament, it's recorded that three times Jesus lowered a sheep down to Peter and said, take and eat, man. And Peter said, by no means, I won't defile myself. And Jesus says, that's the old way of thinking, man. You need to break out. There are some traditions and norms and some things that you need to change. You are freer than you think. And that means you get to relate to people that you've been avoiding. And that also means you can eat what you've always wanted to eat. And we're going to celebrate that today, dang it. Because we've got bacon. <laughs> but here's the thing. When you eat bacon, I want you to eat it and realize that the only reason that we're not hung up on the act of eating bacon... Is because of Jesus. The fact that we don't give a second thought to having an Easter ham shows how truly and fully and completely and pervasively the resurrection story has impacted our world. So it might seem cheesy and it might seem funny, 
But it's true, man. The resurrection wins. Thank you, guys. Here's Shannon.